morning, Journey. You ever been in a, in a place in your life or a moment where you need a, a word of hope, right? Like I look back at my life over the last 44 years and I can pinpoint a, key, a few key sentences or a few key things that the people who said them probably didn't know they would be as profound as they were. They were moments in my journey with God that I needed this word of hope. I can think of the, the youth group girl when we were youth ministers in Sioux City that we were on a CIY trip and we were ready to leave ministry for good. And we were ready to be done. I had just finished riding in a van with 14 sophomore, sophomore girls and I almost drove it off a bridge. And she came up to me in the, like, right before the time to go to bed and gave me this huge hug and said, thanks for bringing us this. My friend wants to give her life to Jesus. So a word of hope in a moment that it was desperately needed. I can think of a season in my life over and over again, I'm sure you can too, where the right word at the right moment changed everything. I can think of the quarterback who came to me at the end of a season one year and said, Coach, it's time for me to give my life to Jesus. I can think of the football players at Wayne State who came to me one time and said, let's win this team for Jesus. I can think of a quarterback at the end of a game who said, I love you, Coach. Thanks for doing this. I can think of moments in my life. I can think of a child who comes to me and says, Dad, I'm not waiting another day to give my life to Jesus. I want you to take a moment this morning and I want you to think of those moments in your life because I know that you have them where somebody came and offered you a word of hope that didn't seem significant maybe to them, but to you it changed everything. We are at a point in the book of Romans where in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul gives us a word that changes everything. It's a moment of hope after talking about this life of desperation. In Romans chapter 7, right before this, what we talked about last week, this is where Paul talks about how what I want to do in my life, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do, and basically my whole life is a bunch of doo-doo, right? That's exactly what he says, right? He says, I just don't understand this. What a horrible, wretched man am I? Somebody who can't figure out how can I live for Jesus in a way that honors what Jesus has done? Somebody who needs a word of hope in a moment of despair. And right after Paul describes this struggle and this challenge, he says this in Romans 8 verse 1. He says, there is therefore. Don't miss the therefore. What's it there for? It's because of everything Paul just talked about. Paul says we're all horrible people. We all struggle. We all, what we want to do, we don't do. What we don't want to do, we do. All these things in my life, what a wretched, horrible person am I. I can never measure up to who Jesus wants me to be. And now there is therefore, because of all of that, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. No matter what you've done or where you've been, no matter all the mistakes that you've made, no matter how far or close to Jesus you've been, there is a word of hope for you this morning. No matter how deep your despair is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've wondered, did Paul ever realize the significance of what he would write? 
See, the theme of Romans 8 really is the Holy Spirit. But what Romans 8 is going to describe to us over the next couple of weeks is the new life of hope that you and I have that the Holy Spirit enables us to live. See, up to this point in Romans, Paul has actually only mentioned the Holy Spirit twice. In one of those, it was kind of a, a passing glance. But in Romans 8, which we'll look at this week and next week, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit over 20 times. Why? Because it is God's work in you, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit for those who know Jesus, who can enable you and I to live out the life of hope that we have in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the word of hope on a daily basis in the moments of despair. Now before we dive in this morning to the rest of our text, I want to point something out that I didn't know until I read some commentaries a few years ago. But in Romans 8, in the entire chapter, there is no what in the English language we call imperatives. In the entire chapter of Romans 8, there's no imperatives. There's no action. There's no you go do this. It's, there's no active statements, no commanding imperatives in the entire chapter of Romans 8. And what that means this morning, it's actually kind of important, what that means is everything you and I are going to read this morning is things that we as believers can receive and enjoy because of our union with Jesus, but there is nothing mentioned in these 17 verses that you and I can achieve or obtain. They are only gifts from the Father through His Son, Jesus. So let's walk through this a little bit this morning. In Romans 8, we're going to read the first four verses. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. It set you free from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law, which was weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Paul tells us that when you and I give our life to Jesus, even though we struggle, even though things aren't perfect, there are things that we receive from God. And the first thing that we receive from God through His Spirit is a new freedom. Paul says condemnation is no longer a part of the life of those who live for Jesus. All the condemnation that was due you and I because of the dumb stuff that we've done, it's gone. Paul says all that condemnation has now transferred to sin. Sin has been condemned at the cross. Death has been condemned at the cross. Sin has been put to death by Jesus so that you and I don't have to be. At the cross, Jesus killed sin and death and punishment once and for all. And so now in Jesus, you and I can receive a freedom. It's essentially the law of double jeopardy, right? So you, you know this if you watch Law and Order. I don't know if you've ever seen Law and Order. I watch Law and Order because I have no life. Um, and it's always on, right? <laughs> like 75 channels. But you can't be tried for the same crime twice. That's what the law of double jeopardy is. You can't be tried for the same crime twice. And since Jesus was already tried, convicted, and condemned for your crimes and for mine... And since you and I are in Christ, what Paul talked about in Romans 5 and Romans 6, 
that we've been buried with Jesus and raised to a new life in Jesus, that means we can't be condemned for the same crimes that Jesus already was condemned for. And so what that means for you and I today is that you and I need to remind ourselves of this truth. When, when Satan tempts you and enters your mind and tells you you're not good enough, when Satan tries to tell you that you can never measure up, when Satan tries to bring up your past and what you've done, no matter how horrible it is, here's what you do, church. When Satan tries to remind you of who you used to be, when he tries to bring up your past to condemn and to shame you, here's what you do. You remind him of Jesus' past, which already paid for yours. You are no longer condemned and held captive anymore. See, the beautiful thing of the message of the gospel that Paul talks about is he tells us that Jesus paid it all. All of it. Jesus didn't pay most of it. <laughs> he, he, he didn't pay a good chunk of it. He didn't put some of it on layaway or on his credit card, right? Jesus didn't pay for all of it except for... No, Paul says Jesus paid it all. And you and I receive a new freedom that is no longer condemned anymore. Paul goes on in verse 5, and he says, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh, that is death. But to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, on the Spirit is life and peace. He says the mind is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul tells us that because you and I have received a new freedom in Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit also gives us, it helps us to receive a new mindset as we live for Jesus. I think we know this, right? That how we live is most often directly the result of what our mind is set upon, right? Like where our mind goes or what we dwell on or what we think about. That's normally where our life also goes. And so church, the question you and I have to ask this morning is what do we set our mind upon most often? Is my mind still drift to the things of the flesh before Jesus? Or have I received the new mindset that can only come from Jesus? It's what Paul was talking about in Colossians 3, where he says, if you've been raised with Jesus, if you've surrendered to him, if you've buried your old life and been raised in you, what we talked about a couple weeks ago in Romans 6, right? He says, if you've done that, then seek the things that are above where Jesus is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. You have died and your life is hidden with Jesus in God. When Jesus, who is now your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. I would suggest this morning, church, if you and I, as followers of Jesus, if we have no peace in life, or if it feels like we have no victory in life, it's probably because our mind is set on the wrong thing. Maybe, maybe I'm focused on who I used to be. Maybe I'm focused on that Romans 7 struggle that I feel like I can't win. 
And maybe what would change my life is to put my focus on Jesus and what he's done for me. See, our life is shaped by whatever dominates our thinking and occupies our mind. The overcoming of sin in our life begins in our minds and with what we think. And Paul says the Holy Spirit, which now lives in us as followers of Jesus, is the one who can change our mindset. We just have to receive it. Paul goes on in verse 9. This is what he says. He says, you, however, as a follower of Jesus, you are not in the flesh anymore. You're in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God actually dwells or lives in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Jesus does not belong to Jesus. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul says that when we give our life to Jesus, we receive this new freedom. And because we have this new freedom, we can receive a new mindset that puts our life and our focus on Jesus. And that happens because of a new indwelling presence that lives within us. His name is the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul goes as far to say that the evidence of conversion is the presence of God's Spirit in your life witnessing to you that you are a child of God, that your identity has changed. In, in Ephesians 1, Paul said it this way. He said, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Him, when you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it to the praise of God's glory. Church, you and I need to recognize that something changed in us when we gave our life to Jesus. That there's now something that lives inside of us that's from God. It's God's presence in us that is there to direct us, to guide us, to comfort us, to encourage us. You and I need to recognize the Holy Spirit and listen to it. Uh, Warren Wearsby, the Bible commentator, said it this way. He said, it's not enough for us to have the Spirit. The Spirit has to have us. And, and if you grew up the way I grew up in, in the churches that I grew up in, we don't want to talk about that, right? We, we, we don't like talking about the Holy Spirit because let's be real this morning. He scares us, Right? When we think of the Holy Spirit, many times all we think about is things that, to be honest with you, are not the Holy Spirit. We, we think if we have the Holy Spirit, we can do magic tricks, right? Or we can do something different than we've ever seen before. That's, that's not what the Bible talks about. The Holy Spirit enables miracles. The Holy Spirit has healed people. The Holy Spirit does all those things. We read that in Scripture. But Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit's primary job is to guide and shape us. It's, it's to awaken us. The, the Holy Spirit awakens us to who we are in Jesus. He, he illuminates God's Word to us. He renews us daily so we can continue to grow into who Jesus redeemed us to be. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms us. 
Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago if you were here. Jesus is the only one who can justify us. He's the only one who can make us right with God. But when we are made right with God through Jesus, we now begin to live out what we call sanctification, right? Beginning to live and look like Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Paul just talked in Romans 7, I try to do it and I don't do it, and when I try not to do the other things, I do them. Paul essentially says in Romans 7, I'm trying to live like Jesus, but I can't. So how do we do it? Well, Paul says it's not supposed to be you doing it anyway. Remember, there's no imperatives in Romans chapter 8. Paul says we receive it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's Word for us. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. And the Holy Spirit softens us and transforms us to look like Jesus. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've read it a bazillion times, and it was on Google, so it probably is, right? But supposedly, when Michelangelo was asked, how did you carve the magnificent statue of David, right? One of his greatest works, the statue of David, he, said, he was asked, how did you do that? And supposedly, Michelangelo's reply was, I looked inside the block of marble and I just took away the bits and pieces that weren't David. Church, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. If Jesus is in charge of your life, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's not making something out of nothing. He's taking the big block of you and me, and He's slowly taking away the bits and pieces that aren't Jesus. They're not who we were created and redeemed to be. In verse 12, <clears throat> Paul says this. He says, so then, because all of this is true, because we have a new freedom in Jesus, because we can get a new mindset through the Holy Spirit, because we have a new indwelling presence, then brothers, we are debtors. We owe. Not to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh, for he said, if, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. He says that over and over and over again. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul says, because we have a new freedom, and because we have a new mindset, and because we have a new indwelling presence, we now have a new obligation. <laughs> we owe our debt used to be to the things of the world, right? We were owned by sin. We were held captive. And our debt was all the things that we thought we had to do to be good enough and, and to be forgiven and to be all these things. And then Paul comes in in Romans and says, you can't do that. You'll never win. What you need to do is receive Jesus. And now you do have a new obligation, but you owe Jesus, the one who has set you free. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who you have from God within you? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body or, or with your life. Paul tells us that because we are in Jesus, the Holy Spirit enables us to put to death the things of the world. 
And that word put to death, it's a Greek word called thanatout. And the Greek word thanatout means total and violent destruction. Now, I'm a big diehard fan, so I love that verse, all right? Like, what Paul is saying is because you have a new freedom, and because you have a new life, and now that the Holy Spirit lives in you and can enable you to do these things, go Bruce Willis on the sin in your life, right? He says it means to reject totally everything that you know to be wrong. To essentially, it means to declare war on the attitudes and the behaviors, to give them no quarter, to take no prisoner. But remember, there's no imperatives in Romans 8. So it can't be us that does that on our own. But Paul says the Holy Spirit will enable you to live out the obligation you now have to Jesus. Tim Keller, the Bible scholar, said this. He said, This is the greatest possible motive for holy living. He says that whenever we sin, what we're really doing is we are endeavoring to frustrate the aim and the purpose of the entire life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. That when you and I sin as followers of Jesus, we are trying to make worthless what Jesus has done. He says if that doesn't work as an incentive for you to live for Jesus, I don't know what will. You and I have to be reminded that somebody had to die so that we could live. That life only came for us through death. And that is who we owe, not the things and the people of this world. Our only obligation is to Jesus. It's why, I don't know if you know this, I learned this, that you see a lot of, like you go out in the country, a lot of times you'll see churches built like where cemeteries are. Have you ever seen that? Like there's a cemetery and then there's a church. I always thought that was weird. I don't know about you. I prefer not to walk past grave sites as I come to church this morning. But this is why they did that. Supposedly back in the day, they always did that because people wanted you to walk literally through death before you came to church. They wanted to remind you that you have to walk through death before you get to life. Jesus is the only one who ever died for you. And so now he becomes the only one that you and I ever owe. And Paul finishes our text this morning. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He says, You did not receive, you did not get from Jesus a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons who cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy. The Spirit who lives in you bears witness with our spirit that we are now children of God. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God. We are heirs with Jesus, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Romans 8, chapter 1, or Romans chapter 8, verse 1, may be the word of hope in the midst of suffering, But those last three verses are the summary of all that Paul's been talking about in the book of Romans. Paul, over and over and over, you've been following this through our series, over and over again, what does Paul tell us? You're no longer who you used to be. I've said this every time I've been up here during this series, never forget what Jesus did for you. 
Jesus literally took us out of a pit of sin and despair and captivity. He raised us up and put us in another place where Paul in Romans chapter 5 says we stand and we live in grace. And Paul reminds us in this passage this morning that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. Our adoption, Paul says, is ordained. It was known by God the Father. Our adoption was purchased by Jesus the Son. And now he says that adoption is applied to our hearts and our minds and our lives by the Holy Spirit. You are adopted. That word adoption tells us, it speaks to us about our relationship with God, that it is based on a legal act that God has done. You cannot win or earn adoption, right? It's Father's Day this morning. Those of you that have kids, they didn't win you, right? Some of, them, some of the kids are like, no, we did not, <laughs> right? My kids will be in second service. It'll be their first time amening in church, Right? You can't win a parent. You can't earn a parent. There is nothing that a child does to win or achieve that status. It can only and simply and beautifully be received. A child of God is never in danger of being fired or abandoned or forsaken because that relationship is based on the unconditional love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. If Jesus would die for you when you were his enemy, why would he ever leave you when he's your brother? If God would give his son while he was your enemy, why would he ever forsake you when you're his child? Tim Keller describes the difference between who we once were and who we now are in Jesus. He says a slave to the flesh obeys under compulsion because they have to. He says, but a son obeys out of love and joy to their father. He said a slave works under the threat of pain and loss and punishment, but a child works under the loving instruction of forgiveness. A slave lives in security and says, if I slip up, my master will beat me. A son and a daughter live in security and say, if I slip up, my father forgives me. A slave coordinates and concentrates on only external behavior and compliance with a set of rules that they can never meet. A child concentrates on a relationship of a father who will never leave. A slave to the flesh has to work but is never given honor. But a child of God is invited to join in the work of the father where he will be honored. As the band comes this morning, I, I like a, there's a pastor down in, in the south named J.D. Greer who I like a lot. And uh, J.D. Greer tells the story of a family from his church who adopted a number of children from South Asia. And he said the mother of these children shared with him one day that she was often saddened she said, see that we just can't figure out, we're, we're deeply saddened over how one of the little boys that they had adopted, who came to their family at the age of five, she says he, he still tries to, to manipulate and to lie and to steal to get his way. She says he does that rather than just asking us for, for what he needs, which we would give him. 
She, she told Pastor Greer, she said, I'm, we're heartbroken because this child still thinks like an orphan, fending for himself instead of the beloved part of our family that we've made him to be. Church, can I ask you this morning, I, I wonder, does God sometimes share the same frustration? Does God often look at you and me when we try to do anything we can to grasp what we think we need, when we try to achieve this life that we know we can't get on our own, when we fight and claw and steal and lie and do all these things because we think that's what will get us what we want, because we think God wouldn't want us to not do this to get it. I wonder if God ever looks at me and goes, come on, man, you're living like an orphan. That's not who you are anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. You've been adopted into the family of a loving and forgiving father who literally gave everything so you could be set free. I don't know about you, church, but for me, sin and the things of the flesh, they, they just don't satisfy that way. The things that I used to do and I used to want before Jesus, they just don't satisfy the same as Him. So church, I have a simple question for you on this Father's Day this morning. Are you living like an orphan or like a child of God forgiven and set free? Here's the good news this morning. The price has already been paid for your adoption. You just have to receive it. I'm going to pray. Uh, it's actually a prayer I found from an author named Banning Leibischer. And I think it fits what we're talking about today. And so I'd ask you to pray with me. Father God, almost daily, <laughs> I don't feel like I have what it takes. I feel insecure. I feel like a failure. I feel like I don't measure up to the life you've called me to live. But I recognize that this wasn't my idea. <laughs> it was yours. You, Father God, are who chose me. And if you chose me, then I either have what it takes or you're going to give me everything I need. Father, would you help us to receive what you've already given as your adopted sons and daughters who have been set free.